Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all here. There are a lot of folks that went to Chris and Dana Holloway's daughter's uh, wedding yesterday in Alabama. Hannah Holloway got married yesterday, and so we rejoice in that. Uh, but uh, only a few of us made the trip back. So a few of us aren't here with us this morning, but we're glad that you're here. And if you've got your Bibles, we're going to continue our study in the book of Romans. So turn, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 15. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 29 of Romans 15. And I've entitled the sermon this morning, A Change of Plans, because in this passage, Paul is going to talk to us about his plans, what he plans to do, what he intends to do, what he desires to do. And we're going to talk about how his plans change. Now, how many of you in here are planners? How many of you are planners? Just a few of you? Yeah, a few. I'm not raising my hand because I'm, I'm not. If my wife was here, she would raise her hand. She is a planner. Um, planners enjoy that. But the, the reality is, even though we all might not enjoy like to-do lists and project lists and getting out calendars and working through that, some of us all, don't always get a thrill out of that. The reality is we all like planning. We, we, we all in, enjoy planning to a certain degree because planning reveals what we want to do. Planning is simply a, a, a revelation of what our desires are and what, what we believe our obligations and responsibilities are and what our plans are to fulfill those obligations and responsibilities. To a large extent, our plans reveal what is most important to us. But if there's one thing that's true about plans, and that is that they can and often do change. Plans sometimes change. And we'll see here this morning that Paul's plans get changed. And so we're going to learn a lesson this morning from Paul's plans and how his plans get changed that might help us with our perspective about our plans. Because we know our plans sometimes change not according to our plan. So this morning, we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul's approach to that to see how we should have a perspective about our plans when they do change. And so follow along in your copy of the Scriptures as I read from Romans 15, verses 22 through 29. This is the Word of God. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now... Since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution to the poor, poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do so, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray, Lord, that, um, that you'd speak to us this morning from this, that your spirit would attend the reading and study of your word to give us understanding, but also to apply it to our lives, Lord, that, so that, that our lives individually and our families and corporately as a church, Lord, that, that we might glorify you, that we might be changed to look a little bit more like your son Jesus, conformed to his image, so that you are magnified through us, through our lives, through our plans, and through how we react when our plans are changed by you. So speak to us this morning, Lord. Give me the anointing of your spirit so that I stay anchored to your text and so that everything I say is according to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we're going to see from Paul's experience and his plans and how his plans get, get changed in this passage or throughout this time of, of his life. We're going to see from this three ways in which our plans need to be yielded. First of all, they need to be yielded to mission. Second of all, our plans need to be yielded to the Spirit's leading or to providence. And then thirdly, our plans need to be yielded to the needs of others around us. So first of all, our plans ought to be yielded to our mission. He begins verse 22 with the word this. He says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Paul tells us in this passage that he's longing to go to Rome. He's longing to visit this church in Rome. Uh, But something's been hindering him. Uh, We mentioned last week that up to this point in his ministry, he's not been to Rome, at least not as a believer in Christ. He's not been there as an apostle. So he's not visited this church in Rome to encourage them and to be refreshed by, by them. He had been nearly everywhere else. We read last week he, he, he had been from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, which is north of Rome, north of Italy, up into um, Eastern Europe. And he had been everywhere else, but he hadn't been to Rome, which is the very epicenter of the Roman Empire itself. So he wanted to go there. He longed to go there, but he had not been there to this point because he had, in his own words, he had so often been hindered from doing so. And he said there was a reason why he had been hindered. He says, this is the reason why I've been hindered. So what is this reason to which he refers here? Well, what he's been saying in the verses just prior to this is that he has been traveling all throughout this region And he had been preaching the gospel because he says, it is my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. And so that's what he's been doing. Look look at verses uh, 19 through 21. He says, so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. So what's the reason why he has been so often been hindered from traveling to Rome and coming to, going there to do what he so wanted to do, he longed to do? The reason was that there were places around him where the name of Christ is not, had not already been named, where Jesus was not known at all. And he knew that it was his God-given calling that Jesus tapped him on the shoulder to go do this, that this was his mission to do. And so he was compelled to go to those places and preach the gospel before he would allow himself to go to Rome and visit the church there. Paul spells this out even more clearly in the next verse, in verse 23. He says, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. He makes no bones about the fact that this is something he really, really wants to do. He really wants to go to Rome. He really wants to visit that church there. He says, I've longed for many years to come to you but I've been hindered. But he says there in verse, th- verse 23, but now I'm no longer hindered from coming to you because the reason why I was hindered, that reason being my, my passion, my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not already been named, that reason is no longer valid. Why? Because in his own words, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Now, Paul was under no false impression that everything that could be done to make disciples in those regions that he had visited, that everything that could be done to make disciples had been done. He he knew that there was more to be done, but using his own words from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we looked at last week, Paul says, I planted, 
Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul knew that it was his specific mission, his strategic mission that Jesus gave him to plant, to plant the gospel where Christ had not been named, where nobody had ever heard the name of Jesus before. And Paul, up to this point, had fulfilled that calling in these areas. And because that, fall, that calling was now fulfilled, now he was free to travel to Rome. I think it's instructive to us that as Paul talks about something that's hindering him from going to Rome, doing something that he longs to do, I think it's instructive for us to note that he was not hindered by some outside influence. He wasn't hindered by someone telling him that he can't go to Rome or forcing him to go on these missionary journeys in Asia Minor and so forth. But instead, he was hindered by his own compulsion to accomplish the mission that he was convinced that Jesus had given him to accomplish. So Paul was a possessed man, almost literally. He was possessed by a compulsion to fulfill God's mission for him. And because of this, he was compelled to elevate God's mission for him over against the things that he wanted to do. Even those things that he had a longing to do, like visit the Roman church. And aren't we glad that Paul was so compelled in this way? Certainly the churches that he planted on his missionary journeys were thankful that Paul had this compulsion to accomplish the mission that Jesus had given to him. If Paul's longings, uh, like his longing to visit Rome, had taken precedence over Jesus' mission to him to preach the gospel where Christ had not been named, then perhaps the gospel would not have penetrated places like Asia Minor and Achaia and Macedonia. And we may not have had churches like the church in Derbe and Lystra and Iconium and Berea and Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and so on and so on and so on. And so it was his spirit-compelled commitment to God's personal mission for him that led Paul to allow the fulfillment of his personal longings to be hindered. So, So his personal mission from God took precedence over his personal longings to do the things that he wanted to do. We ought to have a similar compulsion to do that which God has called us to do. His mission for us ought to take precedence over the things that we want to do. And this should be true for us both individually as well as corporately as a church. And so we should ask ourselves a couple of questions. First of all, what is the mission that God has given us? What is the mission that God has given to us, both individually and corporately as a church? And then we ought to follow that question up, secondly, with what are the longings that we have, both individually and corporately as a church? What are the things that we long to do, or long to become, or long to have, that might detract us from that mission, or might distract us from accomplishing that mission? Those are two very, very important questions. Now, with respect to corporately, our mission as a church comes from, first, Jesus' great commandment to us, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it also comes from Jesus' great commission to us to make disciples of all nations, to love the Lord our God with all of who we are and to make disciples of all nations. And so as a church, corporately, we have chosen to articulate this by saying that our mission is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. That's our mission as a church. So for example, some of us might at some point have a longing for things that might not be necessarily in line with that mission. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. And, and, and by the way, these are not examples that anybody has ever expressed is their longing. So I'm not pointing anybody out here. 
but these are just examples. Some might at some point have a longing for us as a church to have like a Mother's Morning Out program or for us to build a nature path through the, through the woods behind us and have a nice little prayer walk through the property behind us here. Or a longing to start a ministry to the homeless. Now, th- those aren't bad things, right? Th- those are actually good things. And, and some of those might be things that we ought to consider as a church. But if we're not fulfilling our primary mission, which is what? To glorify God by making disciples of all nations. If that's not getting done, or if that's not our primary focus, both volunteer-wise and effort-wise and financially, if that's not our primary focus, then we ought to be hindered from these other longings, right? We ought to be hindered from accomplishing these other longings until we are accomplishing that primary mission that God has given to our church. But we also ought to think about this on an individual level as well, not just as a church, but as individuals and families. And so how would you articulate God's personal mission for you that he wants you to accomplish with your life? How would you articulate the mission that he specifically wants to accomplish through you? Now, I don't know what that's going to look like specifically for you. I don't know specifically how that's going to be fleshed out for you. But I do know this, that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then then your personal mission, in part, will have something to do with you being a gospel witness to those who are far from Christ. Whether they are in your family, or in your neighborhood, or in your workplace, or just in your community, or in the world around us. That part of your mission, your personal mission as a follower of Jesus is to make disciples, to be a gospel witness to your lost friends. And furthermore, if you're a member of this church, then part of your personal mission also is going to have something to do with you being a gospel encouragement to other brothers and sisters in this church church. That's what making disciples is. It's being a gospel witness to the lost and a gospel encouragement to the found. So again, I don't know specifically what he's called you to and and how specifically God wants you to live this out. But in general, each of us who are followers of Christ are to be a gospel witness to lost people and a gospel encouragement to found people be a gospel encouragement to the people that God has around us in the body of Christ. And so then the follow-up question, so that's what is our mission. In general, it's going to be we're, a gospel, we're to be a gospel witness to the lost and a gospel encouragement to the found. Specifically, that's going to be fleshed out in different ways and in different places for each of us, according to where we live, according to our personality, according to our gifting and all of that. But the follow-up question to that mission question is this. What are those individual longings that each of us has, the desires that we have? And, and, and they might be good longings. So we're not talking here about evil longings. We're not talking about the, the, the passions of our flesh. We're not talking about the, the sinful lusts and passions, but good nature longings. So what are those longings that each of us has that might need to be put off? Perhaps temporarily, perhaps indefinitely, because the mission is not the primary focus. The mission is going is is unfulfilled. It's it's going un, unengaged. It's it's unaccomplished. What are those longings? Perhaps they might be things like a longing to retire from work and finally focus on yourself for the last few years of your life. Now, there's nothing wrong with retiring. We all will get to that point where we'll, we're no longer going to be, do, be able to do vocationally what we've been doing. But we all have this American dream, right, to, to, to be able to retire and finally focus on ourselves. Perhaps that's a longing that we need to set aside. 
Maybe it's a longing to ascend to that next rung on the corporate ladder. Maybe it's a longing that we have to make enough money to sell our 2,000 square foot home in order to buy a 3,000 square foot home. Or a longing to have a different kind of car. Or a longing, like for me and my fellow introverted recluses like me, a longing to just retreat to our homes and not engage with the lost world around us. And that one might not be so much of a good-natured longing, but you get what I mean. We could go on, right? The, the possibilities are endless of what these longings might be. That They might be good longings, but do they fit with the mission that God has given to us? And are we engaged in that mission? Are, are, is, is that primary in our life? As we look at our calendar, as we look at our pocketbook, as we look at what we're focusing on, is are we focusing on God's mission for us? Or are we focusing on accomplishing these other longings? And so I would encourage you to ask those two questions of one another sometime this week. Find somebody else in the body of Christ, maybe some in your base group. A lot of our base groups aren't meeting today because we're starting Serve Decula this week and, and meeting after church today. Uh, but maybe it's somebody that's not in your base group. But ask, have, a, have a conversation about those two questions. First of all, what do you, th- what do you think is God's mission for you? How, how do you think specifically and strategically God is calling you to be a gospel witness to the lost and a gospel encouragement to the found? How is that being fleshed out in your life? And then secondly, what are those longings that have the potential to, to distract you from accomplishing that mission and engaging in that mission? I think that would be a very fruitful conversation for us to have with one another. But the question is, are we willing to be hindered from accomplishing those longings? Are we willing to be hindered from that? Because we are compelled to be actively engaged in accomplishing the mission that God has given to us. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 16. He says, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting for necessity is laid upon me. He saw this as a, it, this was necessary for him. This preaching of the gospel, this taking the gospel where Christ had not been named. He saw that as, this was necessary. These other longings, they might not be necessary, but this is necessary. In fact, he ended that verse with this. And this is powerful. He says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me. That word woe means it's a pronouncement of curse. Cursed am I. If I, don't preach, if I don't do what God has called me to do. Paul believed that if he didn't preach the gospel, that is, if, if he didn't live a life pursuing the, comp, uh, the accomplishment of the mission that he was convinced Jesus had given him, then his life, his experience of walking through life, he says would be a cursed life. So much so that he pronounced curse on himself. We could say that Paul in, intends to mean this, that, that if, if he were to devote himself to these lesser longings, like going to visit his friends in Rome, going to visit that church where he knew he'd be refreshed by them, that that if he were to devote himself to those longings and not allow those longings to be hindered by something like a mission from God, then he would consider that kind of life to be a cursed life. And so a life devoted to mission for Paul was, was not some sort of obligation that he begrudged or that he resented. In fact, listen to his words back from Romans chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He says, I'm, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and, and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, so he did believe that this was an obligation of his. He was obliged to preach the gospel where Christ had not been named. He he believed that he owed it to the Gentiles. It was as if it were a debt, but not so much so that he begrudged it or that he resented it because listen to the next verse, verse 15. He says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So this was something he was was eager to do. See, if if it's just a command, and it is, But if it's just a command, then it would be natural for us to, in our flesh, resent it and begrudge it. But it's more than just a command. It's a command from Jesus, our Savior, who rescued us, 
who died for us. He demonstrated his love for us by dying on a Roman cross for us to save us and rescue us. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. And some translations put that, the love of Christ compels us. He's talking here about accomplishing his mission, moving forward in this gospel ministry. And he says, the love of Christ compels us to do this. Why are we doing this? Because the love of Jesus displayed on our cross, it it controls us, it, it compels us. He goes on to say, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. In other words, that they, they might no longer live to fulfill all of, the, all of the longings of their heart, that they might not lo- no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ controlled him and compelled him. And so we should reflectively ask ourselves, does the love of Christ control us? Does the love of Christ displayed on the cross compel you to mission? Listen, if, if, if engaging in the mission that God has given to you is not something that you're being particularly faithful with right now, <clears throat> both gospel witness to the lost as well as gospel encouragement to the found, it's both and, not either or. But if making disciples and sharing the gospel with the lost is not something that you're being particularly faithful with right now, then perhaps the answer is not just to consider this a command. That's part of the answer, because it is a command. We're told to make disciples of all nations. That's a command that's given to every follower of Jesus. But, so it is a command. But I think part of it, and so that the love of Christ would compel us and control us, I think part of the answer, if we find ourselves not being particularly faithful to gospel witness is to recall the grace and mercy and love of Christ displayed on the cross as he voluntarily gave up his life for sinners like us. And so when we step out into this week that we call Serve Decula, where we are intentionally setting aside a week to serve the lost in our community, the people around us, the community in which God has placed us, um, We will be tired as you go out today and you walk neighborhoods and put door hangers out and talk to folks in the hot weather. Um, It's going to be tiring. We will be weep. And we might have a longing to just go to QT and get a a cold drink. Or we might have a longing to go home and and just sit in the air conditioning. Uh, But when we feel that, we should remember Christ. We should remember what he did for us. As we're serving throughout the week, and we could be doing other things, um, we should recall the cross of Jesus and what he endured on our behalf. And we should recall the grace and mercy displayed for us in his sacrifice. And that should compel us. That should control us to continue to pursue mission, to continue to persevere in that. So may the love of Christ compel us to eagerly and faithfully engage in mission wherever God puts us, even so much that the fulfillment of these lesser longings would be hindered and that we'd be okay with that and our joy would not be sacrificed in the least. So first, our plans ought to be yielded to mission. Second, our plans ought to be yielded to the Spirit's leading or as the Puritans like to say yielded to providence or yielded to simply God's will, um, his sovereign plan. Uh, He says in verse 22, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. And we said that this that hindered hindered him from coming to them was his compulsion to preach the gospel, his mission. But something else hindered Paul's plans, but we don't see it in this passage. All we see in this passage are his plans, what his plans are, what he intends to do. So what are his plans? Look at the rest of this passage. It says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain 
and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore, and here's the language of planning again, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So Paul tells us here what his plans are, what he hopes to do. So he's, as he's writing this letter, sitting in Corinth, he's writing this letter to the Roman church. He's got his daytimer out. He's got his Google Calendar pulled up. He's got his project management software set out in front of him. And he's laying out his plans. He's, he's got his next few months planned out, just like many planners in here do as well. So he's going to wrap things up in, in Corinth there. Then he's going to head back to Jerusalem. He's going to, he's going to deliver this financial aid package to the poor in Jerusalem. And then he's going to set out for Spain. He's going to go off to Spain, the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire. And on the way to Spain, he plans to have a layover in Rome. And he's going to spend this wonderful, joyful time of fellowship with them in Rome. So those are his plans. But what really happened? Well, what really happened is documented for us in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a different kind of biblical genre of literature than the book of Romans. The book of Romans is a theological letter from the Apostle Paul to a church, in this case, the Church of Rome, whereas the book of Acts is a historical narrative of what actually occurred. It's Dr. Luke writing in the past tense, this is what happened. These are the acts of the apostles as the early church was planted throughout that area. So what actually happened? We find this um, narrative in the last nine chapters of the book of Acts. So it's a huge section of the book of Acts. Chapters 20 through 28 detail exactly what happened in Paul's life after he wrote this part of his letter to the Romans as he's sitting in Corinth writing out these plans of what the next few months were. Those last nine chapters detail exactly what did happen. So what happened? Well, he did wrap things up in Corinth, and he began his journey back to Rome, but he didn't go directly there. He had several stops along the way, stops in places like Troas and Miletus and others, but he eventually got back to Jerusalem. But within a couple of weeks of returning to Jerusalem, he was arrested. That didn't show up in his daytimer. He was arrested, he was bound in chains, and he was thrown in prison. That, that was nowhere on his Google calendar whatsoever. And then he endured a succession of no less than four trials while he's in Jerusalem. None of which brought his situation to a resolution. And none of which were in his plans at all. He was first tried before the Jewish leaders, the Jewish council, the chief priests and scribes. And then they took him to Felix, who was the governor of, of Judea. And then Felix retired. He was succeeded by Festus. And so now you got to have a trial before Festus. And so he met before Festus. And then he was brought before King Agrippa. And nothing ever happened. And then finally, after his trial before King Agrippa, he was finally taken back to Rome. But he was taken back to Rome in chains. Not as he planned. But it gets better. Because on his way back to Rome, he's on this ship, and there's this huge storm in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Not in his plans. The ship gets shipwrecked. Not in his plans. He gets marooned on the island of Malta for weeks. Not in his plans. And then they borrow another ship, and they complete the journey back to Rome. But Paul is in chains and under house arrest. And none of this was a part of what he planned out for his life and ministry. And he's trying to serve Jesus, right? But you know whose planner it was on? It was all part of God's plan, wasn't it? 
It was all part of his will, his sovereign plan. Or again, as the Puritans were fond of saying, it was all according to providence. Paul knew that whatever happened to him was not ultimately up to him and his plans. He knew that it was up to God. Back on his journey back to Jerusalem, one of his stops was in Miletus, which is just south of Ephesus. And he called the the elders from the church at Ephesus to come down to him and meet with him. And he spent some time with them there. And part of what he said to them is recorded in Acts chapter 20. And in verse 22, he says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. That word constrained literally means bound as if in chains. Today we would use the word handcuffed or arrested or apprehended by the Spirit. And so I'm going back to Jerusalem handcuffed by the Spirit, apprehended by the Spirit, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Paul says, I'm being led by the Spirit here. I'm just being led by him. I'm detained by the Spirit of God. I can't but go where he leads me. But when I get there, I don't know what will happen to me. Now, I think if we were to go back and actually interview Paul there, knowing what was going on in Jerusalem and knowing what life was like for believers in Jesus in Jerusalem during this time, I think Paul probably had a suspicion of what what might possibly could have happened to him when he returned to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This was true, and he continued to not be deterred from continuing on his mission, even though he had the suspicion of suffering. And this is true even when his suspicion of suffering was made even more acute and elevated sharply when his traveling companions warned him about going back to Jerusalem. When they finally reached the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, because they came in north of Jerusalem in, in uh, northern Judea, Tyre and Sidon and, and down in Caesarea, um, as they made their way back there, the traveling companions of the apostle Paul warned him about not going to Jerusalem. And uh, he continued to be not deterred from going. And then this prophet showed up to him and made a prophecy to him. And that's recorded in Acts chapter 21. Listen to verses 10 through 14. Um, Dr. Luke writes, While we were staying for many days there in that area, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet. So he took... He took Paul's belt off. That was a little awkward. But he took his belt and he bound his feet and his hands with his own belt. And then he said this, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews in Jerusalem will will bind the man who owns this belt. And whose belt is it? It's Paul's. This This is how the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus is a prophet from God. He says, thus saith the Lord. This is, gonna, this is what's going to happen to you, Paul. And so when we heard this, the traveling companions of Paul, when they heard this, they said, we, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. How does Paul answer them? Verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded from not going to Jerusalem, we ceased, we ceased trying. We ceased trying to hinder him from that. And we said, let the will of the Lord be done. So Paul had his plans. And they didn't include being arrested. His plans did not include Uh, being tried before the chief priests and Felix and Festus and King Agrippa. He had death threats on him when he was in Jerusalem, narrowly escaping, only by appealing to Caesar and saying, I'm a Roman citizen, I should go back to Rome and be tried before Caesar. None of this was in his plans, being shipwrecked. Paul had his plans, but his plans were yielded to the Spirit's leading. 
They were yielded to providence. They were yielded to God's sovereign will in his life. Even when God's sovereign will might even mean suffering and persecution for him. Back in Acts chapter 16, um, Paul talks about how he had plans to go north and preach the gospel up in Asia. Uh, But the Lord had different plans. I want to read from a passage out of Acts chapter 16. I want you to listen to the clear leading of the Spirit of God in Paul's life. And that his plans were always yielded to the Spirit. It says, beginning in verse 6, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. What did that look like? I don't know. I don't know if it was audible from the Holy Spirit or if it was just through circumstances. It was made clear that that, that route was forbidden to them. It was forbidden by the Holy Spirit from speaking the word in Asia. And when they came to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, so his plans get changed, they go, on, they go down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul. So here's the Lord saying something again. A vision appeared to Paul in the night, And the vision was this, a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is known by scholars as the Macedonian call, the call to bring the gospel to Macedonia, which is where we find Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica and down on down into Corinth. And so his plans were by necessity yielded to the Holy Spirit at every step. The question is, are yours Are your plans yielded to the Holy Spirit? Are our plans yielded to the Holy Spirit? It's really an odd question to ask because in reality, God's plans will never be thwarted. His his will will never not be accomplished. And and if, if our plans don't align with his plans, whose plans do you think will win out? Not ours, but his It is God's will that will be done. His plan will always be accomplished. So it's not as though our plans wouldn't ultimately be yielded to the Spirit anyway. The question for us is when the Spirit, when providence interrupts our plans or changes our plans, how will we respond to that? Will we fight that? Will we get angry about that? There's a, there's a sense in which every time we get frustrated and every time we get angry at situations or things that are happening, there's a sense in which we're getting angry at God because his plans don't align with ours. So how are we going to respond when that happens? Will we pitch a fit that his plans don't align with ours or Will we trust ourselves to God's will and trust that his way is best, even, as in the case with Paul, even if it includes suffering and persecution? So first, our plans ought to be yielded to mission. Secondly, our plans not ought to be yielded to the Spirit. Our plans will be yielded to the Spirit, but how will we respond when that is the case? But thirdly, our plans ought to be yielded to the needs of others. Paul writes in this passage we've read about this aid package that he's bringing back to Jerusalem. And this is financial aid. This is a a financial contribution that he's collecting and he's bringing back. And he's bringing bringing it back to the poor, those who are in need in Jerusalem. And he says specifically to the saints who are in Jerusalem. So he's this is, a, this, is intent being, this is intended specifically and primarily for the church in Jerusalem. But why is Paul uh, taking up this collection and bringing this financial assistance to the saints in Jerusalem? What was the condition of the saints in Jerusalem? What was life like for them? 
Why were they in such poverty? So there's two reasons why Paul took this collection and took it back to Jerusalem. One is economic and one is theological. And Paul lays them both out for us in this passage. First, there's an economic reason. There were lots of poor in Jerusalem during this time. So there's a very acute need to help the poor who were there. There was political instability, as we mentioned. There was Felix, and then there was Festus, and there was all kinds of political unrest, and there was all kinds of economic ramifications for that. Plus, there was just general economic depression during this time. Scholars point out that there was a severe famine in Judea during this time, and so there were, there were a lot of poor. There were a lot of people who had some very real, tangible, material needs in Judea and in Jerusalem during this time. And so... Um, they, they had the need to, to meet that. But in addition to that, the Christians who were in Jerusalem had an even more acute need economically. As is the case today in many uh, uh, Muslim-dominated uh, countries or communities, as is often the case, those who profess faith in Christ are often um, at least ostracized from the marketplace. And they are ostracized from economic opportunity. And such was the case for followers of Jesus who, for the most part, were defecting from Judaism in Jerusalem, which is the center of Jewish life. So the Christians who were in Jerusalem were ostracized from the marketplace. They were cut off from economic opportunity. And so they were struggling to find a way to support themselves. In fact, you, you might recall the first few chapters of Acts as we're learning about the early church, which, by the way, is in Jerusalem. That's, that's the only place there were, there were, there were Christians um, at that point. But as we read about the early church in Jerusalem, we read a lot of passages, passages about how the Christians were selling their homes and they were selling their properties and they were bringing the proceeds to the apostles. And then the apostles were distributing those proceeds to the poor as they had need. Well, they weren't doing that because they needed help with their electric bill. They weren't doing that because they, they, they couldn't afford to buy a second camel. They were doing that because they didn't have food. They were doing that because they, they didn't want their family to starve. And so they were, they were selling that stuff. So this was severe economic depression that was, was made even more worse for followers of Jesus who were living in Jerusalem. So there's a lot of poverty there, especially among the believers. And so Paul definitively saw it as the responsibility of those who had been given much to share with those who had little. And clearly this is a biblical principle that we see throughout Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New. It's something that we must all wrestle with. Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 12, everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And so those who have been given uh, many blessings by the Lord are to share. We have some responsibility. We have, we have some obligation to share with those who have little. In Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus is kind of sharing a parable about the end times and how he will at that point, he will separate the sheep from the goats. And he, it will be the believers from the unbelievers. He'll put the sheep who are the believers on his right, and he will put the goats who are the unbelievers on his left. But then he goes on that passage to say this. He'll look at the sheep on his right, and he'll say this, and I quote, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, the sheep, the believers on his right, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So Paul, uh, Jesus is not saying there that helping those who are in need, helping the poor, is what made them sheep. But he's saying because you are sheep, this is what you're doing. 
and, and, and the demonstration of helping others who are in need and helping the least of these, my brothers, demonstrates your sheepness. It demonstrates that you are a sheep. But then Jesus says he'll look to his left and he'll say to the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. Naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And again, he's not saying that not helping those who were in need and not helping and feeding those who were poor and hungry made them goats. But the fact that they didn't help, that there was not a change of their heart to be compassionate to those who were in need, demonstrated their goatness. So it's a clear and unavoidable biblical principle that those who are given opportunity to help those around them who are in need ought, ought to help and feel a responsibility to try to meet that need. This is the primary lesson of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, right? That we ought to help our neighbors who are in need and who are our neighbors, those around us who are in need. Now, we can't help with every need that is out there. We know that, nor should we even try. So how do we know which needs to respond to, which needs to help with? When, in terms of financial assistance, like what Paul is providing to the poor saints in Jerusalem here, we can make our decisions based on two biblical kind of general guiding principles here. And we don't have time to dive into the the, the biblical rationale behind this, but I'll, I'll simply give them to you and explain them. First, our responsibility in these situations increases. Our responsibility to help those in need increases as their closeness to us increases. So the proximity of the need is directly proportional to our responsibility to meet that need. And so we can kind of think of it in terms of concentric circles. We, our greatest responsibility is to our family. Paul makes that very, very clear. He who does not take care of his own family is worse than an unbeliever. So, so our, our greatest responsibility is our family. Then moving out from there is, is our church family, those with whom we are in covenant with one another. And then we move out from there, and it is other believers who might not be a part of our community, other least of these my brothers, uh, Jesus says, then moving out from there, it, it would be those in the world around us, in our workplace, in our community, in our neighborhood, and extending out from there. Now, of course, there would be exceptions when there's a crisis, when there's an emergency, and, and that, that need is brought to us. We're made aware of that. In that sense, we could say that the awareness of that need is, is brought close to that, and certainly we should respond to that. But in a general sense, the closeness of the need is in direct proportion to our responsibility to meet that need. The second general principle is that our responsibility increases as their ability to meet their own needs decreases. So it's the, here's an indirect proportion. As their ability to meet their own need increases, they're more able to meet their own needs, our responsibility to meet that need should decrease, right? So we're, we're not to feel some kind of responsibility to provide for those who have an ability to provide for themselves, but they simply don't for whatever reason that they don't. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul even gives Timothy a guiding principle on deciding which widows are going to make the list for benevolence help, for the distribution of food and financial resources. And, and not all widows got on that list because some widows should be helped by their family. They've got people there to help them. Some widows could support themselves, but those who didn't have anybody, those who didn't have any means of supporting themselves, they went on that list. And so there was this, uh, this determining of ability to help themselves 
that helped them determine what was their responsibility to meet that need. But the overarching principle here is that we have a responsibility to meet the needs of those who are in need around us. And this is what Paul was saying to the Gentile believers, specifically the, the, the Roman believers, because they were the most affluent, the most wealthy in that culture. And so they ought to be willing to generously share some of that wealth in order to help others. So there are huge implications for us. There's huge implications for the American church here. But we'll move on. Because it's the second reason why Paul was taking a collection to the poor in Jerusalem. The first reason is economic. There were poor there. The, the, the believers in Christ were in dire need. And the Gentile believers throughout Macedonia, throughout Achaia, were not in that kind of dire need. They had the ability to help. And so Paul said, you got a responsibility to help. But secondly, there's a theological reason. Paul was taking this collection specifically from the Gentiles. He was collecting this offering from Gentile believers and taking it to Jewish believers. Look at verses 25 and 26. He says, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints there, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So he's collecting this from the Gentile believers in Macedonia and Achaia. These are primarily Gentile churches. And we remember last time we talked about how the word Gentile basically is a word that means non-Jew. It means ethnicity other than Jewish, other than an Israelite. And so these were primarily Gentile churches, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, Corinth, all throughout this area. So why was he collecting from Gentiles and bringing that offering to those who were primarily Jewish believers, those from a Jewish ethnicity who have recognized Jesus as the Messiah and come to faith, which is what almost exclusively, certainly primarily, the Jerusalem church was filled with. Why was he taken from the Gentiles? And collecting this collection from them and bringing it to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And I think, one, we can again say it's economic. Well, they, they weren't in the famine, and they were, and so they, he was doing that. But there's another reason, and he addresses it in this passage. Look at verse 27. It says, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. And so note that, they were pleased to do it, and they owed it to them. So it was both a delight and a debt. And we ought not to fall into the lie that those two things can be mutually exclusive. That if we have a debt that we ought to, that we are obliged to fulfill, that it can't also be a delight to us. They were pleased to do this, but it was also their responsibility. It was, it was a debt that they had, but he tells us why in the remainder of verse 27. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Now, this is going to take us back to Romans chapter 11. And all that Paul was telling, to, telling us in that particular chapter, where he was laboring to impress upon this Gentile church in Rome that they, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, those whom he called at that point who were from a wild olive branch, that they had been, by the grace of God, grafted into a cultivated olive vine. And that is the olive vine of Israel, the chosen people of God. And we were talking about this when we looked at that chapter, how we as primarily Gentiles, Gentile believers today, we have been grafted in to a Jewish family, if you will. We have been grafted into a Jewish faith. And in so doing, Gentile believers, as Paul says here in verse 27, have come to share in their Israel's, the chosen peoples, we have come to share in their blessings. And since we're now part of true spiritual Israel, the Israel of God, then we ought also to be a service of them, service to them, he says, service of service to the Jewish believers, the completed Jews who have come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. 
that we ought to also be of service to them, as he says, in material blessings. So there's a, there's a couple of things that I see here, maybe three things that I see here that, that have application to us today. First of all, they saw that they had a spiritual indebtedness to the saints in Jerusalem. That, that, that they had an indebtedness to the founding church in Jerusalem that prompted this offering. But secondarily, and we see this all throughout Paul's writings, is that Paul, Paul's a Jew, right? He was a, he was a Pharisee. He was a Jew of Jews. And he, he is called by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so it's as if Paul is standing here between these two who don't really like each other ethnically. And he's saying, listen, we should come together. And he's using this offering from the Gentiles as a sense of a peace offering to the Jews who are in Jerusalem, bringing unity to the body of Christ. And so there's a sense of spiritual indebtedness to those from whom we originate. Secondly, there's a sense in which this brings unity to the body of Christ, that there's no, no more in the gospel, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, for we are all one in Christ, he says. But I think also there's a sense in which, and I could be wrong, but I think there's a sense in which this helps Paul in his desire, in his heart, to see Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ. Let me read back from a, uh, Romans chapter 11, something we covered several months ago, verses 13 through 14. Paul says this, he says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I, I magnify my ministry. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. Jealous of what? He told us earlier in verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Jealous of what? Jealous of faith in Christ. Jealous of salvation through the Messiah. So he says there in verse 13, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and to save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And so there was this connection, if you remember, between uh, spiritual Israel uh, and the Gentiles being grafted into that vine. But Paul had this heart. He had this heart to see the Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he's elevating, he's magnifying his ministry. And in part, this collection from the Gentiles to the Jews is magnifying his ministry so that they see the change of heart in the lives of these Gentiles as he brings this offering back to the, to the Jewish believers there, the unbelievers in Jerusalem will also see, wow, these Gentiles are aiding Jews. Something must have transformed their life. And so I think there's a sense in which, in the heart of Paul, as he takes this collection from the Gentiles to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, that he has a heart to see some of his fellow countrymen come to faith in Christ because he sees the demonstration of a changed life in the lives of these Gentile believers who are now aiding the Jews in Jerusalem, something that would have been foreign to them at that time. So church, we think about our plans. We have our daytimers. There's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with setting goals and setting out project lists. But our plans change, and we need to be willing for our plans to change. Our plans need to be yielded to our mission. Are our longings primary or secondary to God's mission for us? Our plans are yielded to, to providence, to, to God's sovereign will. How do we react when he changes our plans? But thirdly, our plans ought to be yielded to the needs of others that God puts around us that we need to be responsive to and not just have our blinders on on what we think our plans are and have enough margin in our life to be able to respond to the needs of people that God puts around us so that God would be glorified and so that unbelievers would see a changed life and want to know what is the reason for the hope that you have in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. And we pray, Father, that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word 
by sending your Holy Spirit to give us understanding and to transform us to look like this. Um, Lord, we pray that um, we would always be receptive to the fact that you have prerogative in our life and you can do whatever you want to with us. And Lord, prevent us from either putting you in a box or assembling barriers in our life that when your plans don't align with ours, we get upset, we get frustrated, we get mad at you. Instead, Lord, allow us to see that our plans ultimately are yielded to yours, and and we don't want our will. We want your will for our life. And so I just pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would bring us to that place of um, acquiescing to your will and surrender to your will moment by moment, day by day. And Lord, pray for those in this room who don't know you by faith in Christ, Lord, that you give them the faith to trust in Jesus, uh, that they cannot make themselves acceptable to you by taking bread and taking juice or by trying to make our plans yielded to you, that it's only by faith in Jesus, it's only by trusting what Jesus accomplished that we can be made right before you. And so I pray for that lost person who may even be in this room, Lord, that you'd give them the faith to trust in Jesus as their only hope. We thank you for this truth in Jesus' name. Amen.